0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ruben Neuenhuis, and today I will be speaking with Elizabeth Humphreys about her book, How Labor Built Neoliberalism Australia's Accord, the Labor Movement, and the Neoliberal Project. Why do we always assume that it was the new right that was at the center of constructing neoliberalism? How might corporatism have advanced neoliberalism? And more controversially, Were the trade unions only victims of neoliberal change or did they play a more contradictory role? In How Labor Built Neoliberalism, Elizabeth Humphreys examines the role of the Labor Party and the trade unions in constructing neoliberalism in Australia and the implications of this for understanding neoliberalism's global advance. These questions are central to understanding the present condition of the labor movement and its prospects for the future. Dr. Elizabeth Humphreys is a political economist and the Head of Discipline, Social and Political Sciences at University of Technology, Sydney. She is interested in the impact of economic crisis and climate change on workers, and how workplaces can be made safer and more equitable. She takes a multidisciplinary approach, also drawing on sociology and history, to develop policy and strategies for social change. Elizabeth, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Thanks very much for having me on, Ruben.
0: To start off, can you briefly introduce yourself and talk a bit about your academic interests?
1: I became an academic, um, I guess, a bit later in life. Um, I started doing research on social and labour movements out of interest in having been involved in those movements throughout my life. Um, I have a PhD in political economy and I work at the University of Technology in Sydney now. I'm particularly interested, I guess, in... um, periods of change for for workers and so i've looked at both economic change and that's what the focus of my book but increasingly i've been looking at the sort of disruptions that climate change bring for workers both in terms of work health and safety but also more broadly and just unsettling and transforming workplaces and labor relations
0: yeah and i guess it was probably those interests that made you want to write this book is that right
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I guess a personal interest, you know, I grew up in a working-class family um, in the period that I examined, the 1980s and um, 1990s. Uh, My dad worked in an oil refinery and my mum worked as a bank teller. So, you know, economic crisis, unemployment, inflation, high interest rates, these really shaped um, my family life when I was um, growing up. And I guess I always had the question of, well, why did a Labour Party, a a progressive party of the centre-left pursue policies that really made life difficult for the sorts of families i lived in? Um, You know, they're sort of life questions that sat with me for a long time Um, and it was only really when I got to do my PhD that I thought about what I would look at I wanted to look at labour issues and so I returned to sort of that period as a a way to understand the trajectory of labor movements now to understand decisions they've made in the past.
0: Right. Well, I think I have to start out by asking uh, a couple questions about neoliberalism. This is a term that's been around for a while and it's subject to some debate. You yourself in this book enter that debate where you pull out what you call the dominant narrative and of neoliberalism, but you argue that it's too limiting in some regards. So my question is, what is neoliberalism as you understand it? And perhaps while answering that, you could also touch on what is the dominant narrative and the challenges you pose it.
1: Yeah, neoliberalism, I guess, is now a term that's pretty understood outside the academy. But it was a way of describing, um, at first really in the scholarly world, the sorts of policies and processes that were implemented after the 1970s um, economic crises. So it's, you know, the sort of touchstone policies are things like privatisation of public infrastructure and assets, you know, um, treating the way governments run a bit more like running a corporation, prioritising acting on inflation over an unemployment. Um, and it really involved a period of curtailing the um, sort of power of trade unions and um, limiting um, workers' rights. Um, the sort of language that's used, of course, is increasing flexibility in the workplace, increasing efficiency in the workplace. It really is about curtailing that power. And then others really point to the shift in wealth that's happened in what we would call the neoliberal era, so shifting um uh, money and wealth from the bottom 99% to the top 1%. 1%. So we're in a period now where some of those sorts of policies and changes have like an everyday language around the 99% versus the 1%. It's a bit of a contested term p- because people are saying it's so amorphous and it's so different in every country that it's not particularly useful. I think it's useful because, of, you know, people know what we're talking about when we talk about neoliberalism, even if there's a lot of variety internationally. And I guess that I make an argument in the book that there has been this sort of dominant narrative of neoliberalism, that it has to resemble what happened under Ronald Reagan in the United States, or it needs to resemble what happened under Margaret Thatcher in the UK. And that this sort of, that's what neoliberalism looks like. But actually neoliberalism looked quite different in different countries. It also happened in slightly different timeframes. So, you know, in the countries with former uh, dictatorships like um, uh, Greece, Spain, neoliberalism happens a little bit later. It happens a little bit later in the former um, Eastern Bloc in places like Poland. The uniqueness or, or a little bit of uniqueness that happens, I suppose, in Australia and in New Zealand is that this transformation doesn't happen under what we'd call new right governments like Thatcher and Reagan. It happened under... Um, labourist governments, so governments run by labour parties that had deep connections to trade unions. And, you know, we've always got to be cautious about reading off developments in one country from another, and there is a bit of a tendency to read off the development in other Anglophone countries from the US and UK and reading off the whole world from the US. Um, You see it all the time. People quote facts about one country as if, Um, if it's relevant to another. So I sort of just take the approach that it's really important and useful to look at both what's similar in different countries, so what might be similar in Australia to that dominant narrative, but really what's unique also. That can really help us understand what are the core, what were the core objectives in neoliberalism that were achieved and tried in most countries, and then what perhaps are more um, on the fringe of what we call that neoliberal transformation. Like it doesn't really matter if it was implemented or not. And I think that's why we arrive at really focusing on things like the curtailing of union power. This needed to happen in every country, not just um, uh, the US and UK, but but in every country where there was that sort of uh, transformation of the political economy. And it's worth saying, like and I do say this in the book, that the way neoliberalism is often talked about is as if it was this um, phenomenon uh, and set of policies invented by, um, you know, um, uh, uh, neoliberal economists and the US government. It's then, you know, they go and implement it in the developing world in places like Chile, like it spreads from the US. So really... um, US-centric way of understanding um, economic change. And, of course, there were quite different changes happening in many developing countries and in the Global South um, in the period that we're talking about. And so, you know, it's just useful, I think, for um, people involved in social movements and scholars generally to think about that uniqueness and similarity. What, what can we learn by comparing countries in that way?
0: hmm and in your book, you discuss four stages to Australia's neoliberalization. Could you discuss what these stages are and why you find it important to periodize neoliberalism?
1: I found it really useful to, you know, policies. Sometimes when we think about politics, we think it is related only to the election of a certain government. You know, like the US took a particular turn when Trump was elected. Um, I, I hear this said about things like um, uh, the immigration and um, it keeping people out and borders, but actually this was happening under Obama as well, right? happens in a different way. And so it's useful to understand how things shift, um, say, with an election of government, but actually what that continuity between periods are. So what I had a look at is, well, what, what were the key shifts in um, political economy in relation to neoliberalism in Australia? Why didn't it happen earlier, right? Why why does it really only really kick off in 1983 when the Labor government gets elected? Why isn't it happening five years earlier under a pretty radical conservative government that hated unions? You know, it's happening under Thatcher in the same time. Why not? And I, for me, that sort of allowed me to delineate four periods, that there was this like proto-neoliberal phase where there was a lot of talk about the need to make transformations to the economy, the need to privatise, the need to float the dollar, to let in foreign banks, to to have a whole range of changes. And people are arguing for them, but it doesn't actually happen. Then there's a period of what I call... um, sort of vanguard neoliberalism. And I I think this is what we're talking about when we talk about the election of Thatcher, the election of Reagan and the election of the Australian Labor Party under Bob Hawke and then later Paul Keating. It means that there's the political means in that moment to implement those policies. The power structures and the relationships um, in politics, which include um, workers and unions, Shift and that becomes sort of possible. Um, the that sort of vanguard period is where a lot of big changes happen. After that, there's a more I talk about a more piecemeal phase where we're still like in a neoliberal era, but actually they've made a lot of the big policy and interventions that they they started charging fees for going to university. It's no longer free, um, and a bunch of those changes. I think by the time we get to um, uh, to, 2007, 2008 and the global financial crisis. Australia doesn't actually go into recession in that period. But by that stage policy making in Australia and globally shifts away from just being about neoliberalism. Um, governments are sort of forced to Uh, look for other policies that are going to try and help economies recover in that kind of recessionary crisis period. And policymaking becomes a bit more mixed. So so I call that a crisis phase. And I think that's still where we are. There's still a pursuing of pretty um, conservative, neoliberal-ish policies in some ways, austerity. On the other hand, we've seen massive, massive government spending in order to simulate growth through the COVID period and through the um, through the global financial crisis um, in in 2000, uh, 2008.
0: I want to shift to ask a couple of questions about the theory that you use. So, you the main theorist you engage with is Antonio Gramsci. Specifically, you utilize his concept of integral state. This is coming from the context of Karl Marx's contention that there's an irreconcilable antagonism between the state and civil society. Gramsci's integral state is a way of understanding the relationship between the two and how consent is produced among subaltern classes for the benefit of the elite. Can you unpack this? How does the integral state work? And how do you see this concept being helpful for understanding the construction of neoliberalism in Australia?
1: Yeah, perhaps the answer to this sort of starts with, why would I even be looking at this topic, right? I, I said before it was because I was interested in the accord in that period. This is true. But my abiding interest as someone who's been involved in activism and social change and in a trade union is, what is the nature of the state? Why does the state often not do um, what movements um, try and force it to do? And th- there was a big moment actually with the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq. We saw the biggest protests in the history of the planet in places like Australia, but it did not shift government um, policy. The invasion and occupation went ahead in Iraq. And for me, that 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 sort of points to, to a need for social movement actors and um, trade union activists to have an understanding about what is the nature of the state. Is it just the average interest of society? Is it just this umpire that decides between competing interests? And I think when we look to Marx and Gramsci for a way to understand the state, we see that the state has its own interests, which is ensuring that capitalism is stable You know, it has a monopoly on violence in the police force and um, uh, in the military, and it uses this for particular ends. Um, When, you know, Marx is talking about like, well, why would people not just go off and get elected to parliament, right? If good people are are there, then uh, they'll make good decisions. And he's quite focused that the interests of the state are quite separate from the interests of all the atomized people um, in society and that once, you know, sort of people, um, labour labor movement people are deputised and go into the state, they become quite separate um, from the interests of civil society and that the state sort of acts against civil society in a way. Gramsci phrases it a different way. He talks about this... The, what you mentioned, the concept of the integral state, that there's sort of this unity, not separation, between the state and civil society. So how do we reconcile Marx, saying on the one hand it's all about this separation and separation of interests, on the other, Gramsci saying that these things are knitted together? Um, And I think particularly because obviously Gramsci's cleaving incredibly close to Marx's uh, understanding of historical materialism and, you know, he's he's involved in a project in the prison notebooks of reviving Marxism on a non-totalitarian or anti-totalitarian basis. And I think it's because we have to understand that tension is dialectical, that the state is both incorporating dissent from civil society in order to manage it. And, you know, one way to think about it is a containerizing, right? How the state actually looks at the the disputes and fights and arguments and movements that are happening in civil society and it needs to incorporate them within state structures in a way that doesn't fundamentally challenge the state's interest in maintaining um, capitalist accumulation and expanding accumulation. Now, for me, this was incredibly helpful to understand why a Labor Party who was representing um, supposedly... Um, the working class in Australia, and a trade union movement, which is made up of working people. And at the period that this all kicked off, over 50% of workers in Australia were members of trade unions. There's a really high density, a majority of workers. So why would the unions enter an agreement that really curtails um, union power by banning industrial action effectively for that period and holding down wages. And that's that's the substance of this agreement. So if we ask like, why, why is this a useful way to think about um, my topic, but also how is it a useful way to think about social change generally? How do, why does the state um, attempt to, I guess, manage dissent in particular ways? We can think about it even in relation to climate change now. There's a massive need to change the planet. There's clear evidence. There's massive social movements. Why do states not do things, but also how do they like swallow up that dissent and channel it in ways that don't fundamentally interrupt um, capitalist accumulation?
0: Yeah, and then I I think there was like another concept that's pretty important, and it's um, from Leo Panich, corporatism. And in, in some ways, in my reading of the book, corporatism kind of extended the thought of integral state because it, it involves a kind of disguised control measure whereby a particular group gets a representative in a ruling body. Um, but I guess, yeah, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. In your book, what connection do you draw between corporatism and integral state? And can you discuss where you find corporatism in Australia's neoliberalization?
1: yeah corporatism is one mechanism of the integral state but i'll I'll explain what we mean by corporatism you know in australia um the country was colonized by the british in 1788 right without um without permission and there were intense wars frontier wars um fought between first nations people and the invaders um those colonies Uh, like the US, exist as big towns and states over a period. But in 1901, those states in Australia become federated into a structure which we now call um, call Australia, made up of different states and territories. At the same sort of time, a a way of managing um, workers and workplaces was instituted through conciliation and arbitration. What it means is that unions in Australia have to be registered, that disputes get settled by an independent um, conciliation process that's run by the courts. And this has meant from the very start of the Australian Commonwealth, workers and unions have been highly integrated into these settlement structures within state processes. And these are what we would call sort of corporatist um, ways of managing things. What Padichport is particularly focused on when he analyses corporatism and what I look at at in the book is a sort of um, extension of that sort of state management through either bipartite or tripartite decision-making around work and economics, what we might call social contracts. Panich examines the social contract um, that happens in the UK in the 70s, but there are other examples, particularly, this is a popular way of managing things in Scandinavia. Um, in Australia, it's a bipartite agreement that comes about in 1983 between the unions and the government. In other locations, it can also include um, industry. And so these sort of this sort of like um, uh, this sort of corporatism, I think it's useful to think through Gramsci to to look at that. The state incorporates people into its processes in different ways. In Australia, there's compulsory voting. Everyone is compelled to vote at every local council, state and federal election. This is a way of incorporating the populace into capitalist democratic processes. And corporatism in terms of this agreement I see it as another way that, you know, Gramsci talks about these um, like fortresses and uh, like trenches, little tentacles the state has within civil society. Having this agreement, incorporating the unions into a process where they agree to things that in the end are against the interests of their workers is one, that form of, that corporatism, that social contract is one form of the integral state. And that's where I see these, Uh, Panisha's insights about corporatism and Gramsci's insights about integral state really coming together to help analyze the specificity of Australia in the period.
0: Mm. And I I think that in some ways segues well to the next question, which is, I think it's helpful to have an understanding of the accord. Uh, This is something I didn't know anything about before reading this book. And, For the benefit of listeners who may not know much or anything about what the accord is, could you provide a a very brief overview of what it is, like the the timeline of when it was implemented, what its stated intentions were, and so on?
1: So the accord was an agreement between the Australian Labour Party and the Australian Council of Trade Unions, which is like an umbrella group of all trade unions, on prices and incomes. That was literally its title, the accord. But it's commonly called a social contract. And... What the agreement, so the agreement came about because there'd been efforts to resolve the economic crisis in Australia through the 1970s. There were like five economic recessions in 10 years and it was pretty similar globally. Um, The unions hadn't really been able to defeat the um, sort of repressive efforts of the government um, in cracking down on unions, but nor had um, the unions been um, able to sort of win Um, hold up living standards of their workers. So you have both the economic crisis continuing, but you also have unions quite worried about um, rising unemployment, so many of their members being unemployed, um, falling wages in certain periods. And so this, this comes to a head in, I guess, unions in Australia and the Labor Party looking to places like Scandinavia going on tours of these countries and say, well, actually what we need is centralised planning. We need a process by which um, the unions and the government and industry come together, we make agreements and we solve the economic crisis in a planned way. And so the accord is that. It says that that wages, because they're concerned about wages pushing up inflation and that's a concern globally, wages are going to be held down to the level of inflation. They're not going to go above inflation. And in return for workers sort of showing um, their willingness to have that happen, there'll be an expansion of the social wage. So we're going to um, give, we're going to set up a system for workers' retirement pensions, and we're going to set up um, a universal healthcare system. There's other policies involved. Um, they're going, they say they'll increase um, family reunions under um, migration policy they're going to expand access to higher education, um, and there's a a few other things. They're they're gonna reform the tax system on a progressive basis. What happens in effect, this agreement is sort of agreed in the early 80s, but it comes into effect in Mm -hmm. April 1983 when, or March 1983, sorry, when um, the Hawke government gets elected, this becomes national economic policy. Is it implemented? Not really. The suppression of wages, the um, the union's agreement to not take industrial action, this is absolutely implemented and ruthlessly enforced. But, you know, higher education is sort of expanded, but only through the introduction of fees. The tax system actually becomes more unequal. There's a whole range of privatisations, free trade agreements, uh, and all this other policy reforms that sort of against the spirit of the accord. And there's a period of austerity. Government spending, the, the, the Prime Minister, Bob Hawke, from the Labor Party, uh, makes a declaration that government spending will not go up as a pro, um, as a proportion um, uh, to plus spending on population. And this means that the, that sort of expansionary period that unions felt they'd signed up for did not happen. And, in fact, wage, wages don't even keep up with inflation. Through several, several sort of mechanisms, uh, real wages fall over that period. And, of course, the, because uh, if you think, like, numbers-wise, if you're on a smaller wage and you're getting 5% increase in wages, and you're on a big wage and you're getting 5%, means the rich get richer and the poor get poorer compared to each other. So you have this terrible thing where there's a Labor Party in power and the poorest 10% are having their wages curtailed and suppressed um, much more. you know there's a lot of talk about how Reagan and Thatcher did such a good job at holding down wages and industrial action in this period, but actually Australian Labor Party does a better job of it um, than both of both of them. It, it's it lasts for 13 years that agreement it tra- it sort of transforms over this period and there's lots of different additions. Um, but really that key objective of um, suppressing wages, and stopping industrial action by effectively banning strikes and other um, forms of industrial action is the key effect.
0: What, um, I think you've kind of touched on this, but would you say that there's some particular um, highlights of what sort of cooperation went on between the Labour Party and unions in Australia during this time?
1: I think the unions really desired a seat at the table. They felt that um, in the Fraser Liberal, and by in Australia when we say Liberal, in the Conservative government, um, uh, so the Conservative government of Fraser, who's a bit like Thatcher and Reagan in some ways, um, that, that this had been a period where the union had no access to uh, no influence, right, and that the accord was really going to be this really planned bipartite process, right? Wherever those people are sitting around the table. Now, of course, that presumes there is a shared interest between the state and unions, or a shared interest between the state and workers, and there isn't, right? There there are fundamentally different um, interests going on um, in that relationship. It's also an unequal relationship. The unions and workers do not have equal power and can't even, if they sign an agreement, enforce that agreement. And that's, in effect, um, what happened. The other thing about these sorts of agreements, and it's very useful to think of, to use Panitch's understanding of what happened in the 70s in the UK, is that it takes the decision-making about workers' wages and conditions from the factory floor, um, as the phrase goes, or from from the grassroots, to being decisions amongst elite players and politicians and union leaders around a table. This this changes how how workers' power is built and held onto and experienced um, across the workforce. So if you, for 13 years, effectively ban industrial action As a way and direct negotiation with employers as a way to make decisions about wages and conditions and you just make it around a table with Labour Party politicians and their friends who run the unions of course this demobilizes and disorganizes class power um, within the within um, Australia's working class and so for me you know it's not so much did did bad people come and make bad policies and agree agree to bad things we have to think more deeply about what. how does this fundamentally reshape the nature of the Australian working class in that period. And the key effect of neoliberal policymaking and of this social contract, contract agreement is to disorganise um, the working class in Australia. Union density goes down from 50% to um, 13 14 15% is what it um, has been in sort of the last um, decade. This is a fundamental shift in the way that, Um, labour is organised in Australia and the key point in that getting back to that dominant narrative of course this is not something that is enforced on the population in the way that Ronald Reagan goes to war with the airline um, the air traffic controllers union and Thatcher goes to war with the miners to implement policies and reforms around industrial relations this is done with the absolute consent of union leaders this is a consensual agreement and that that points to us understanding neoliberalism in a different way. It can be made fit for purpose in different locations and different times. The way I read the history of Australia is actually neoliberalism could not have been implemented in the late 70s like some other locations because the unions were too powerful. They were at their highest density. There were peak strike periods in in, the 70s and in 1981. It took a Labor Party with its it's swallowing up or containerizing of working-class power in order to implement neoliberalism in Australia. And this becomes really helpful, not to say that Australia is completely unique, but then when we go and look at somewhere like France or we go and look at somewhere like Poland, where actually it might be social democratic forces that implement neoliberalism, or we look at Finland even more recently, um, how do social democratic forces on a consensual basis, sometimes containerize that worker's power and and transform the economic conditions in order to bolster accumulation against workers' workers' living standards and and workers' interests. And that's the lesson. Like, it's no point being correct about an analysis of historical facts if it doesn't inform what we do now. The lessons to be learned are how should unions organise in a period where states... If we understand that states do not share their interests, cannot share their interests and will never share their interests, what does that mean, for example, when we're talking about something like a Green New Deal, right? Is the state's interest in how we adapt to climate change the same as workers' interests in how we adapt? Are we really going to be able to sit around a table and agree to some Green New Deal where everybody's got shared interests? No. Actually, Adaptation of climate change is going to be a deeply political, contested, classed, raced project. And so it's. I think it's useful to look at examples like consensual decision making and social contracts in order to shape how we're going to get through the new massive transformation that's necessary if we're going to avoid extinction.
0: It sounds like there were a lot of political moves made to enforce the accord and neoliberal principles. Things ranging from deregistering unions that didn't comply or charging fines to unions, even if they didn't sign and agree to standards. What would you say are some of the important events or just maybe some of the examples that really stand out to you?
1: Yeah, if we put ourselves in the shoes of um, workers when this accord starts, when the agreement starts in um, 1983, there's been a period in the 70s where there's been freezes on wages under that Fraser Conservative government. And it's meant some workers' wages have really declined in real terms in that period. Um, So there's a few unions who... um, try and uh, you know start industrial action in those early years of the accord to try and make up those lost wages. So if you're negotiating for your agreement fell on the wrong side of the date of the accord coming in, you couldn't make them up. And so we're talking about sometimes really quite um, low paid workers and significant amounts of money like 10% of wages. So there was some important disputes in those early years. The famous ones are the Mudge and Berry meat workers. Um, and the dollar suites, um, which were confectionery factory workers, so really low-paid workers. They tried to take industrial action over wages and other conditions and really two things happened. Um, The government didn't directly, you know, take action against them, but it made an opening for quite conservative new right forces largely associated with the Conservative Party in Australia to take civil action against those unions. So there'd always been laws on the books in Australia that you couldn't um, really do things that harmed the ability of companies to make money. And so they took the, um, and those laws had sort of been Tested in the past, but the union movement was so strong. Actually, those they just became dead letter, um, dead letter laws. Right, that that they couldn't really be implemented. But in that environment where these unions were quite isolated, there wasn't any solidarity from other unions. The government was against them. This these civil actions um, proceeded. Um, Two of the key young lawyers later became um, uh, key key. politicians. um, One was a federal treasurer in that conservative um, party like 15, 20 years later. And those unions were given incredibly significant fines that really um, uh, did all but destroy them. And so at the same time that happened interestingly, the one of the other unions that that tried to, I guess, go against the laws and um test them out was the Academics Union, who were equally as unsuccessful, but not as terribly fined um, um by it. Um at the same time, there was one union who was much more powerful historically in Australia called the Builders' Labourers Federation and particularly um, their Victorian branch were against the accord. And so they sort of were making noises that they were going to... Um, Uh, not abide by the conditions that they were going to take industrial action. And the Labor government and the trade union leadership really wanted to make sure this accord held up. And so there was a lot, again, of isolating um, unions who wanted to push back against the accord. There were other issues of um, uh, corruption in that union, and that made an opening for the union to be deregistered at the federal level. Now, Like I said earlier, that means that if you got deregistered as a union, you couldn't represent workers in arbitration. So there's no banning of this union, but because it couldn't actually go and represent workers and fight for enterprise bargaining agreements, um, in effect, it makes it very difficult for a union to survive in the Australian context. Um, and, And that's exactly what happened to the Builders Laborers Federation. You know, listeners might know that the the main thing the BLF, the Builders Labourers, are famous for is a thing called the Green Bands in Australia. Where industrial action in, particularly in Sydney, but also in Melbourne, was taken in solidarity with working class communities and environment groups to halt um, development, to protect working class housing in inner city areas, to protect the environment. They're known as Green Bands because of the environmental um, aspect. Um, And they also took, in in Sydney, industrial action in support of um, gay and lesbian students at Macquarie University. You know, so it was like blue-collar labourers' jobs on work sites, their union in solidarity um, on a broad range of um, political questions. And this has become a real touchstone for, I, I guess, activists over generations in Australia and globally for green activists who are interested in real deep solidarity um, with unions. And so to have that union um, deregistered was highly political and um, was really about, um, in some ways, there was a, a real desire to see one of the most radical um, uh, unions um, uh, destroyed and, and that's really um, what, what happened a, um, out of that. Sort of later in the accord period, um, there was a lot of, of course, you know, if wages have been held down for so many years and living standards are really being quite smashed, you can imagine within unions, within there's a lot of dissent about, like, whether this is really in the interests of union members. Panic says, based on his analysis of the UK and elsewhere, actually what happens is grassroots rank and file people rise up and the social contract ends up falling over because of internal Um, problems. This did not happen in Australia. Um, People left unions instead. That density of unions dropped from 50% to the low teens. But the other thing that happened is small sort of um, I guess special one-off agreements were made with some unions. So the Australian Labor Party and the union movement wanted to keep the nurses union on side. So actually they were given sort of a special arrangement where they did get some wage increases but when the, one of the pilot's unions tried to go outside the accord agreement and put in a large claim to make up lost um, income, this was seen as a real threat to the survival of the social contract. And so the Australian Labor Party sent in strike breakers in uh, the form of um, uh, army pilots um, and, and military personnel to fly commercial flights for Qantas and, um, and, and other airlines. And they really set up this sort of narrative that these were wealthy pilots, you know, that ordinary blue-collar workers were tightening their belts and everybody was pulling together and these, you know, terrible, wealthy, well-off pilots just wanted more money. Um, and so really it didn't, um, it did not go well, that dispute, um, but it was the beginning of the end of the social contract um, uh, uh in another sense, because the real sort of, I guess, problems of the social contract had started to come to the fore by then. You know, bizarrely, you know, the social contract was all about centralising decision-making about industrial awards, right, giving everybody the same prey rise, managing it really tightly. They then really opened up bargaining and allowed individual um, unions and um, to bargain for uh, real differences in wages linked to productivity and other things. It was the start of a real deregulation of um, industrial um, uh, decision-making um, in the Australian context. You know, maybe this is, Australia's got a peculiar system. It's, it's not like a lot of other countries. But what had sort of over the that century, one thing that had happened is when wage rises were won by powerful workers in the metal section these flowed on automatically to less powerful workers and low paid workers elsewhere there was it's called the solidarity mechanism and that that centralized process meant that there you could have a fight in the metal industry with the biggest and powerful most powerful union and this would flow on to um you know, cleaners and factory workers and others who may or may may not have a lot of industrial power. That deregulation through the accord process, it broke that solidarity mechanism and that really fundamentally changed how industrial decision-making in Australia um, uh, happens. So for me now, I'm an academic. If we win a good pay rise, this has no impact on whether um, uh, you know, a, a cleaner in a hospital um, is going to get a better deal. And, you know, it's a really bizarre outcome, right, when you think that this was led by the union movement and led by the Labor Party to get these sorts of um, uh, in a further sort of inequalities and um, uh, in the industrial system.
0: So, yeah, I mean, it, it's obvious from the discussion so far, the, the Accord did not live up to its stated intentions. It, um, And that's kind of, that's one of the most crucial questions that you look at in this book, um, which is why did the trade unions continue to cooperate with the Accord process when it became clear that key agreements were not gonna be met? I mean, th- this was something that went on for um, quite a while, um, almost a decade. And, uh, yeah, I guess that's, that. maybe you could answer that question that you look at in the book.
1: I guess there's a more general answer, which is do union leaderships and union rank and file share the same interests all the time? Um, One big, and that's in any country, one big change in Australia is um, with that hollowing out of union membership, Union leaders became quite detached in some ways from their memberships. Um, Unions became more top-down. Decisions about conditions and wages had been made from the top. Um, And I I do end the book with a chapter that looks at, well, what if we think about the development of neoliberalism and the periodization of neoliberalism internationally a bit differently? Um, If we look at the US, right, there were periods of concession bargaining before the election um, of Reagan. There were attempts by unions to quell industrial action by rank and file and by more militant unions. It's not exceptional um, that unions attempt to control memberships. And, you know, so I detail there using the work of, um, uh, you know, key US um, political economists and and um, uh, labour um, and labour theorists, I guess, to you know people like Kim Moody, like what if we if we don't accept that neoliberalism is this fixed thing that happens overnight when the Reagan New Right government gets elected, what does a more what does a slower path of the development of these policies mean? And what does concession bargaining in the US before Reagan mean? What does it mean if your, your leaders in a particular union are making agreements? And by what concession bargain I mean like agreeing if you give us X pay rise, we we say we will not go on strike for two years for the length of that that's like a mini social contract in that workplace. And so we can think about a social contract as, like, countrywide, like in Australia, but we can also think of concession bargaining as a way where, um, you know, things get negotiated and um, then people, then then unions and workers are sort of prevented from taking industrial action. Um, And it's not... um, You know, we we look at the fiscal crisis in New York City, which is another um, thing I look at in the work of John Krinsky um, in in looking at um, that period. You also see a a range of sort of other um, problems arise where labour unions start to presume certain solutions um, like um, uh, you know that they need to be equally responsible for the sort of fiscal crisis that happens in the '70s in in um in New York City, and that's for me that's accepting that actually workers can sacrifice in this general interest rather than um, there are actually separate interests between workers and states. The the sorts of decisions that have happened in um, periods where, you know, the IMF has, um, uh, loans have been needed by the IMF in the neoliberal period have actually led to a whole implementation of a whole range of policies that are against um, the interests of working people, like defunding state infrastructure, defunding hospitals, health services, schools you know the the rise of privatization of those services of utilities and so it's quite a messy history about how these policies come about but taking the approach of thinking about well who makes these decisions whose interests are they in and why wh- why were they pursued for me why why would the labor party Uh, sorry, why would the trade unions stay in this social contract? Well, I think actually there was a lot of desire to get out, but they were a bit trapped. When you have a labourist party who is connected to the trade union movement, I mean, trade unions have votes at Australian Labour Party conferences to decide policy. It's a very enmeshed um, situation. For me, you know, looking forward, what's needed is developing independent labour power one that is not tied to a political party um, that um, is in government in periods. And the Australian Labor Party has been in government Whether during every major economic crisis um, since Federation. This means the Australian Party, Labor Party is the party relied on to actually curtail labour power when there's a need to suppress wages suppress industrial action and um, and restructure economies to revive accumulation. That is the Labor Party's power. And Panich has this beautiful way of putting it that, you know, Labor Parties take the solid sort of, I won't get the words right, but like the solidarity that people feel to the nation and translate it in um, a way that uh, involves them in state processes that are against their interests. And it's really worth um, I think if you're interested in these issues, look at, looking up how he thinks about um, the relationship between laborist and social democratic forces and, and the parties, that, uh, sorry, the um, unions that represent um, working people's interests.
0: Yeah, I, re- I remember you talking in the book about um, just like the cultivation of national interest and how like that helped contribute to this. Um
1: sort of language, like... It was all about Australia coming together in this national interest. Um, you know, we were going to put aside the industrial friction of the past, and we are all going to march on together as if we had the same interests and we could deliver outcomes for every that were in the interests of everyone. Well, history proved that that wasn't correct, but also it's not correct ever because the state has different interests yeah. to working people um, and. That that has to be a a lens that we or, or a framework that we take forward, and we when we're thinking about the next um, the next crises, the the massive crises of climate change, which is bound up with the crisis of inequality um, globally and within nations, is obviously clearly the biggest challenge that um, we're we're facing. Uh, that's facing humanity and unless we understand what the state's interested in we're going to fall into the idea that you know we can just restructure the economy just like we did in World War II we'll have massive investment and we're going to change the way we produce um, energy and it's all going to be good that's that's not actually how these things happen and also we're not states making these changes undemocratically and forcing them on populations we're for democratic control of um the way things are produced and consumed and the way we live our lives and so you know change will adaptation will happen with climate change the question is does it happen down the ga- barrel of a gun or does it happen on a democratic basis where um and i mean real democracy not just at the ballot box every three or four years, but in a way where there's real say in how we organize um, workers and um, uh, in the interests of humans and um, the rest of the planet, uh, life on the rest of the planet.
0: Right. Well, you you mentioned that the, at the end of your book, you do turn to a global scale to look at neoliberalism um, that kind of um, – developed in other countries that wasn't part of the dominant narrative by mainstream politically right parties. And so New Zealand, um, Finland, um, you, you mentioned uh, New York City. Um, would you say in your research that you see any notable difference in the effects between neoliberalism introduced in countries led by mainstream right versus mainstream Um, left parties?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I've actually thought about this a lot in terms of the trajectory between Australia and New Zealand. Um, And so perhaps I'll just say something on that first. Australia and New Zealand have very similar industrial relations systems, this centralized arbitration conciliation that's a bit unique in the world. And it means that often the countries are really compared quite closely because they're kind of similar, right, Um, in in a way that um, Australia and the US policy-wise and structure-wise are not. Um, And an an academic who wrote about the most incredible sort of book I ever read on neoliberalism is called uh, The New Zealand Experiment, Um, um, and the alternative title is Economic Fundamentalism, Jane Kelsey. And she said to me something that I thought was quite interesting, She said that because the accord was a consensual process in Australia, it more deeply tied the trained unions into the capitalist project. In New Zealand, a Labour Party was also in power, but actually it was the unions fought the implementation of neoliberalism. And this meant that the neoliberalism it was a more fractious path. But actually the unions, because they stood up to the implementation of neoliberalism in lots of ways, meant that it was easier to sort of break that containerization of unions. Oh, I can't say for certain because I'm not an expert on the rollout of neoliberalism um, in in places like the US and the UK, in the sort of way that people like Kim Moody are. Um, but you have to wonder that where where these processes were more consensual. Whether this actually tied workers' interests into state interests in a really fundamental and deep way—that's been hard to break—and whether, in by having disputes with the air, the air traffic controllers or the miners' union, that actually this um, maintained a level of um, amongst radical unions of independent organising capacity and desire um, within those unions. You know, that that social contract I mentioned in the 70s in the UK, that was broken in what was called the winter of discontent, where unions uh, left radical unions, pushed back against that social contract and broke it. It is important that unions fight um, and uh, in Australia, curtailing that kind of industrial activity for 13 years has had a serious, profound um, um, impact. Strikes are rare now in Australia. Um, industrial power is incredibly weak. Density is incredibly low. Um, and you know, even the most the brightest minds in trade unions, um, who do the hardest work, um, organisers, um, it has been really difficult to to revive those things in, in in most of the economy. Um, And, you know, it's a real challenge um, in Australia for, like, how do we actually not even rebuild? Like, the unions in the past had problems. They were white and male-dominated, right? And actually the workforce is way more diverse than the union leadership still. What do we do to actually build from the bottom up, to build um, working people's power um, uh, socially and politically? Um, You know, we've got to understand in Australia that past that collaboration and incorporation, um, but every country is unique, and the U.S. <laughs> the U.S. has its own own um, peculiarities and challenges in terms of um, organizing. Of course, it's wonderful when you see Amazon workers and gig workers and others these bright sparks internationally um, of people trying to think new ways of organizing in new industrial regimes where there are, particularly for workers with limited power, there's a lot we can learn from each other um, um, in that context. But we certainly can't rely on conservative union leaders or social democratic or laborist parties for the way forward. It has to be independent working, um, independent power of working people um, that's got to be rebuilt.
0: As one of the last questions do you have any takeaways that you hope your readers or listeners to this podcast will have from your book? Is there anything you want us to learn and perhaps do differently in the future?
1: Yeah, well, definitely don't have all the answers. Um, it, you know, as I've said to some people, it's very easy being an academic looking back on a period like this and um knowing that I don't have to have the solution, right, for that historical moment, I get to critique it and I've got, um, I I can look backwards um, in a way that people can't, right, Um, look look forwards. That said, for me, my abiding interest is about the nature of the state and how social movements and labour movements understand that. There is a bit of an attitude that... That if we just have enough information um, that and we prove the moral correctness of something, that people in power will make the right decision. Well, the the caging up of asylum seekers in Australia and um, the the U.S. and the um, removal of children from their families in in relation to refugees um, in the U.S. proves that moral collect correctness and facts about the realities of what people are going through are not not alone enough. The state has its own interests in why it manages something like population movements in particular ways that are nothing to do with um, whether it's morally right to cross a border or not but actually about the economic interests of accumulation in a particular geography and so for the left on any question um and it, whether it's um questions around and the big ones in Australia are around asylum seekers climate change inequality um that we have to we have to remember that there's no shortcut. Isn't that even the name of one of the books about the U.S. Um, labor movement? There is no shortcut, right, to organising um, social power. It can't. You we can't expect the state to substitute for the sorts of movements and, um, and and infrastructures we build in civil society. That that is what has to be done first. And so for me, that means two things: not relying or thinking the state will actually um, uh, act in the interests of working people? Um, and then what? Are, what is the next step to organising that independent sort of labour power um, in the post-neoliberal um, world?
0: Great, yeah. Well, the final question we like to ask is, do you have any upcoming books or projects that you're working on?
1: Oh, good God. Um, yes, well, I, I don't have a book that's imminent, but for me, I've been trying to think through the question of climate change impacts on labor. A lot of the focus has been on things like the Green New Deal, right? And just transitions for workers in fossil fuel industries um, to other jobs when that winds down. But the biggest day-to-day impact of climate change is actually on the health and safety of workers. For me, that's a question of protecting workers, but also um, is this an organizing opportunity, right? Is occupational health and safety in a period where we're going to have massive heat waves and hot days where um, disenfranchised and poorly paid workers are going to be forced to work and put their health at risk? Is this actually a point where we can um, um, organise? And for me, adaptation is very much talked in very apolitical terms by everyone, as if, you know, it's it's just naturally going to happen. For me, this is the... Um, real um, it's going to be hotly contested and it's highly politicized. And I think we have to think about adaptation of climate change as needing a kind of radical politic politicization. So that's what I'm that's the book I'm, I'm working on at the moment.
0: Elizabeth, I think we've taken up enough of your time. Thank you so much for discussing your book with us.
1: Oh, my pleasure, thanks very much.